Stuff up Saturday, breaking cycles, we rebels. Stuff up Saturday, uplift with love. Stuff up Saturday, breaking cycles, we rebels. We are having such a great conversation that I wanted to continue it, but I wanted to break it up into two parts. So here we go. Part two. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have a pure open heart and people can sense that in us. Um, yeah. People gravitate toward us. Um, like people often tell me all types of stuff that they don't tell other people because they can tell that I'm actively listening to them and I'm not judging them and that that I'm a wise person. Like I like that's the whole thing about being a doctor is and being a social worker and a therapist, all this sort of thing. Like you're kind of naturally wise. Um, so my patients really um, love and respect me for that. But even people I never met will open up to me more than they open up to a lot of people. And for me, part of that, so part, so I had two, two things to say about what you just said. I used to work in public health and I had to, I left a couple of jobs. One, I left because of microaggressions. So that was what Sean and I were talking about. Um, I left because of microaggressions. And the second job, it just got to the point where like you were just saying, like, I just couldn't be effective at my job anymore. And I felt like I was contributing to their trauma versus their healing, you know? And so I wanted to change jobs for that reason. And the job where I have now, I won't say that it's perfect, but I do feel like I'm more on the healing side of helping people heal from trauma, helping people um, improve their health versus contributing to their trauma, you know? Um, but it's, it's just really hard because these jobs definitely will try to traumatize you and try to make you into a robot and try to uh, make everything into assembly line. Uh, so I've, every once in a while, I'll talk a little bit about capitalism on this uh, podcast because yeah. pop, capitalism, you know, really keeps a lot of mess going and creates a lot of chaos and disturbs our peace on a regular basis. So I, um, I, my new job, when I first started, you know, it's been a pandemic, all that sort of stuff. And so we were trying to see as many people as we could. And then they wanted to find me money for not closing my charts within seven days. And I was like, oh, okay. So (laughs) I was like, all right, I want to practice how I want to practice. So I, you know, started doing longer visits, seeing less people, making sure I got my charts closed within seven days um, and just creating those boundaries at work. You know what I mean? Like you, you create boundaries with your friends, with your family, but we have to be better about creating boundaries at work because they will literally try to work us to death. And that's been one of the most traumatic things that happened to me in the past year is that one of my partners literally worked himself to death, you know, and we were just like, this is exactly what we've been talking about. We've been talking about how can we tell people about boundaries and work-life balance if y'all are trying to work us to death, you know? And then how traumatic is it? And it's very traumatic for you. You know what I mean? Because that's your friend, your colleague. But how traumatic is it for your doctor to die? The same person who has been telling you to get your A1C under control, to reduce your hypertension, and your doctor just passes away. It's like, what the heck? You know, and then that's, you know, far removed from that. That's more of a caseload for you because somebody has to pick up the slack. And it's like, it's a constant cycle of no one being healthy and no one getting anything resolved. Right. And that's the thing, like, you know, our America just really has a lot of problems with everything. Like everything is crumbling right now, right? So healthcare is having a lot of problems because people have gone on this kind of um, factory type of job. And it's, it, it makes your job, as a, especially as a doctor, ineffective. You know, I can't effectively take care of people in 10 minutes um, and really do a whole lot. For me, I didn't really, 
I didn't try to pick up all of the slack from so uh, from the doctor in our office who passed away. It was kind of like I can't I I can't see him work himself to death and then turn mm-hmm. around and work myself to death. Like I, we have to still have boundaries. So we have you know we're working on changing the whole model of our office, and we were just like we'll try to see as many people as we can see, but we can't take on all of those patients. They may have to go to a new office. They may have to go elsewhere because we're having a problem right now. And so of course the higher ups, you know, in the C, in the C-suites, they're like, no, you need to take all these patients. And we're, and and we've done a lot to push back and advocate for ourselves and say, no, we cannot take all of those patients. We will take as many as they can fit on our schedule over a certain amount of time, but I'm not about to be here working myself to death after I just saw my partner literally like he he died of cancer so but it was very fast he literally got diagnosed with cancer and died two weeks later and then like the worst part about it was nothing stopped so you all didn't get a chance to heal from that either absolutely nothing stopped and that's one of the biggest things a lot of doctors say like when they hear of their colleagues dying they send out an email they may even make an announcement in the hospital and then that's it there's there's literally and obviously they had a memorial for him and everything but it's not like you know you, we talk about this all the time like if you drop dead that's they're gonna be somebody to replace you if you if you die they're gonna replace you you know obviously we, we've had a hard time getting somebody in our office because i don't know that you can really advertise a lot <laughs> hey you want to come join this office or it's a hot mess so we're right. doing what we can to restructure it so that it's less of a hot mess because, but you know, like that kind of, there's either we, at that point we had a choice of either we can make our office better so that we can not burn ourselves out and drop dead, or we can delude ourselves with the illusion of the savior complex of, no, we got to take care of all of his patients and keep going on a mission. But literally before he passed away, that's what was, that was actually what was really sad about it for me because I didn't really know him that well. And since I started, he was kind of on this like savior mission of like, no, we got to work hard. We got to take care of all these people. And we had been like, no, we got to work smarter, not harder. So we had been, you know, telling him that. And he had been kind of getting on page with us. And then literally on his deathbed, he was just like, you all were right. Oh my gosh. That's so hard to like even process because he's gone in two weeks and now he's regretting, you know, the decisions that he made and what yeah. can you do at that point? I'm so sorry, Anissa. Yeah. We need a healthcare overhaul. I just, we can't, we're losing too many people. And Yeah. And it's, it's that, but it's like America, it's America, you know, like we need a, we need a, a workplace overhaul because you know there's accountability in the fact that people don't want to do a lot of these jobs um and, and feedback that is going in there there's feedback and accountability that's happening right now and people need to listen so one of the things that i've said about you know us as millennials i always say that people baby boomers like my dad's a baby boomer so i already know like about working hard i, I definitely have worked hard in my life like very hard but i developed cancer at a young age and so after that I started being like okay let me chill out and at the same time I got my IUD out so I didn't feel as much of a like a compulsion to be a people pleaser and be on a run as much um and then at the same time I was just like I just literally have been really stressed out not sleeping all this sort of thing and I didn't I didn't gave myself cancer you know (laughs) so 
that's just how I processed it. You know what I mean? So I was just like, I just need to do more to chill out. I need to do more. I started, that's when I started learning more about meditation and just started saying no to a lot more stuff. Like, nope, nope. I can only do this certain amount of things. I can't be out here running myself ragged. So I think that, you know, I tell people all the time that people will say like millennials, they don't want to work. I'm like, no, it's not that we don't want to work. It's a trauma response. We've seen our parents work themselves into poor health. We've seen our parents and our colleagues works or, you know, family members and our colleagues and all types of things work themselves to death. And we are like, we have to do something different. Are y'all paying attention? Are y'all watching everything? Like if this, you know, like we were talking earlier um, before we started recording, we were saying that like, I've always been more of a leader and, and less of a follower especially like if the, you know the whole the old saying was if you see uh people jumping off the bridge what are you gonna do and it's just like me I'm definitely gonna go the other way when I see danger I'm gonna go the other way and that's kind of where a lot of millennials are it's like we see danger we see yeah. people dropping dead we see the poor health that our parents are in and we're like no like we gotta do something different because why why would I do that yeah and that's like the whole shift of like our dynamic and on a side note like my dad I was working at Head Start and he was like well my friend is selling a daycare do you want it and I seen my dad age because he's had a business he's at a trucking company and it was incorporated when I was one and he's aged prematurely like he's been bald since I can't remember like and it's like he's I know some of that's genetics but it's still like he's aged prematurely because the stress of the business yes it's successful but it's stressful right like even with my colleagues like it's just so hard to like get that generation out of there and this is why we do and I'm kind of jumping around here but like this is why we're like in a tiny home phase we're like not but because we are more so about experiences than than buying and building and doing all these things and checking those things off the box right because it's like you can't do anything you you can dedicate your whole life to a job like my job my hospital the hospital I work for is clothing and it's in the middle of the hood in the poorest neighborhood one of the poorest neighborhoods in the country and we do food pantries giveaways we have clothing because we have a lot of psych patients that come in you know sometimes they're in a crisis Mm -hmm. they're naked they don't have clothes they Mm -hmm. defecated overall you know so we make sure that they're okay before they leave and i've seen all these people poor thousands and i mean rightfully so because it was a great mission but i'm seeing all these people who work themselves literally almost to death that i work with and now the facility's closing like what do you do then yeah it's like i don't ever want to be in that position right and it's hard because that's you know we've learned a lot of this stuff because we've been to therapy or because people have told us you know a lot like you know just just a different perspective like we've been we've been able to experience the world a little bit different with a different perspective of seeing our parents um like my father that's one of the reasons why I try to eat so healthy because my father got diagnosed with diabetes when he was about my age so for me since I've been like I said I was a little anxious and future oriented as a young person I just I stopped drinking soda and sugary beverages like as a teenager and then when I went to college I started trying to work on eating less carbs and that sort of thing and so now you know, as a professional is like having boundaries, making sure I sleep, all that sort of thing. So it's just like, for us, we're trying to figure out, like, we know, we know the lifespan now is supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to be living in 75, 85, hopefully. 
but the life the life expectancy in America is decreasing you know it's decreasing like with the opiate epidemic with COVID with obesity with uh all of these people working themselves to death like the lifespan is literally decreasing and if you're paying attention to the world um and in America especially you should be learning you know obviously there's a certain level of learning how to do the opposite of what's happening um, but then there's a level of advocacy. And that's what, for me, I'm very excited about the fact that millennials, like we're kind of the youngest millennials born in 84, I think 82 might be the youngest, but we're, we're right there. We're right there at the very, um, that exennial they call us like at the, at the cusp of Gen X and, and um, millennials, we're getting to the point and even Gen X, like Gen X gets it. So I'm really excited to see the leadership, like to see the leadership of people going into politics, the leadership of corporate America, all of these sorts of people coming into those roles where they can change things um, and say, you know, hey, this is actually a trauma response. And young people, it's not that we're lazy. It's just that we want to have a work-life balance. Like they talk about that all the time now in residency interviews. They're like, oh, I want a work-life balance. And all of the, all the older doctors are like, what do you mean? And so it's like, yes, we want you to work hard, but we understand that it's generally not safe for you to be awake for 30 hours. Like there's just a different level of conversation and changes and advocacy that's happening um, in healthcare. And obviously a lot of the disaster that's happening right now is creating even more conversation, but I just can't wait for a lot of the people who don't get it to retire. <laughs> because they're, they're literally just to be like, oh, I, I don't understand. And it's like, if you don't understand, then why don't you retire? You know, that's what, that's what frustrates me, but it's coming, it's coming. And I, well, I can't wait to see how it changes. Well, with them, and see, here's the thing too, they don't have anything else other than work. Right. Whereas we're looking forward to retirement. Like we are like investing and saving and trying to, I have to do better. I'll be honest, I have to do better myself. But now that I'm getting closer to 40, I'm like, I got to start, you know, doing things heavier. Um, but they don't have anything. They don't have any hobbies outside of work. Right. So they're like, why don't you want to work six days a week? And we're like, right. because we are going to have brunch with our friends and do yoga. Like we're going to we have like, coping mechanisms, coping skills, constructive coping. Like, like I want to get home and I want to read my book and get in the bubble bath, or I want to have date night with my husband and I want to go on vacation with my friends or, you know, just anything other than just being at work all the time. Exactly. I just don't, they don't know any, all they know is just work, 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 work. Yes. And I feel like they've missed out on so much of their lives because we have like, literally if we were independently wealthy right now, if some rich person was like, Anissa, you don't have to work ever again. Siobhan, you don't have to work or we just won the lottery. Our lives would still be full. Right. It would yep. still be, we would probably maybe just work part-time telehealth just to make sure that we're still investing in our community. Just to have some kind of purpose. Right, to have some type of purpose in life. But our lives would be full without having to work for a living. The generation before us, they would be lost. Like, what would they do? They definitely are because that's my father like he he definitely tries to go to work from time to time but it's just hard because your body you know they haven't taken care of their bodies like they were supposed to and then they try to work at 70 just because that's just what they're used to doing and it's just hard um i know i have quite a i say specialized in taking care of older adults so this is a conversation that we have a lot but you know so it's it's definitely different and the times are changing and i'm you know like i said in every tragedy, 
is, you know, a glimmer of hope of things being different and people learning the lessons. So I definitely know that my office has learned a lesson of, you know, what happened with our colleague and we're changing a lot of things. And I hope that we continue to change and keep having people listen to us. Um, but it doesn't, I, I've said, <laughs> one of the things I've said about my office and healthcare in general, I'm like, you know, people can either listen and change or they can close it all up. I said, because when Netflix was coming out and Blockbuster, you know, had an opportunity probably to pivot and do some yeah. electronic things, they were very arrogant from what I understand. And they're, yeah, out, of read that yep. and they're out of business. So I, I would just say like healthcare, the way the healthcare profession is right now, like y'all can be arrogant. Y'all can be arrogant if you want to, but change is inevitable. So people are going to figure it out, especially for me as a primary care doctor, I can go open up my own place. I definitely could go open up my own spot. And a lot of doctors are doing that. So, and, and running how they want to run it. So, you know, it's definitely a different time to even have corporate medicine. And so that's what I say all the time. Like, you know, you, you have two choices. Either you listen to your workforce of what they want, or you try to force people to do things that they don't want to do. And they're all going to quit and you're not going to have a workforce, you know? And that's the thing, like, I have a cousin who's a nurse practitioner, and she has a med spa. You know, yeah. you have, we have different options now than what we were doing before. And it's, like you said, things have to change. Like, you can't put people into massive debt to obtain education. You know, we have all these shortages, but, like, look at what's changed. Like, every hospital before had a nursing school that was affordable, that was in the neighborhood that you can go to. Now, you know, they want to charge people $50,000 to be an LPN. You know what I mean? And it's not, right. for some people, it's not worth the squeeze. And like you said, as a primary care doctor, I've seen a couple of doctors like online and they're like, I don't take insurance. I've seen some psychiatrists. I don't take insurance. You just pay this flat rate. I don't have to deal with insurance. You just and pay, pay me it. this. Yep. And, and it's affordable. It. Yep. And, and they get the time that they pay. want and they get the care yep. that they want. Yeah. And they Sorry. actually get like a half an hour with their doctor and right. they get, you know, they get these things and it's like, well, like you said, you have to, you have to adjust or you're not going to have a workforce. So right. something has to change. And, and the thing for me that's interesting too, like I said, it's not just healthcare, it's every industry. And one of the things that I've said about, you know, advocating for change and people just, people just learning about survival, like adaptability and flexibility is part of survival skills, you know? And I've said that, you know, people often will say a lot of the young people like Gen Z and that sort of thing, they don't want to work. And I'm like, the problem we have in America is employer-based insurance, health insurance. Because if you kind of just took away benefits, if people just figured out their own retirement plans as they want to, because a lot of people don't save for retirement. Um, so if you took away a lot of the healthcare benefits, I mean, if you took away idea of benefits at jobs, um, and if we had like socialized medicine and people didn't have to work to have healthcare, you could be a lot more flexible and adaptable to how people want to work. Cause I'm like a lot of the people in Gen Z and young millennials, it's not that they don't want to work. Is that they, they're a little like anxious ADD people kind of like how we are. Um, yeah. For me, I, I like to have a variety of job options. I don't like right now is a weekday and I'm not in my office right now because I like to be able to do a few different things. It's, it's exciting and it helps me not burn out, you know? So for um, a lot of like, so I worked as a geriatrician, I used to work in nursing homes and the nursing homes, especially are having a really big hard time keeping employees. And I'm like, what, what places have to do is like what Amazon does. Um, so Amazon obviously has its problems, 
But one of the things that Amazon does is innovate and be creative. And so Amazon has like shifts where you can work four hours. And a lot of times people will work four hours like when they get off from their regular job. I'm like, most people would, wouldn't mind working like 20 hours, like four hours at one job and 20 hours at a different job. The only reason why they don't do that is because of benefits. I would love to work at my job half the time at the hospital and then work as a therapy practice. The other hours. hours. Yeah, because that would be great. I feel like I could take on more clients. There wouldn't be a waiting list. And I could just, you know, I could fulfill my needs at work and still like, you know, be in touch with the patients and things like that. But I could also, you know, have therapy. And I think that would be, that would be great. It would be amazing. That's what most young, like that's what most millennials and probably a lot of Gen X even want to do. That's what the, the future, that's what the future of your workforce, that's what the future of the workforce, because that's why everybody does like DoorDash. They do Uber. They do all of these things. They, were, they offer a lot of flexibility and not a lot of time. Like people yeah. will literally go drive Uber for four hours. People literally drive Uber for four hours and pay their rent. Yeah. So it's like, if you see that industries like DoorDash, Uber Eats, um, Uber, uh, driving, Lyft, uh, Amazon, all of the places that are making a lot of money right now are places where people can work a few hours at a time. So mm-hmm. that's the thing for me that people don't pay attention to and learn how to survive in that way. Because even in our office, like we had uh, one of our uh, medical assistants, she you know, was having some things going on at home. And so she started working four hours, like 20 hours a week. Um, so, you know, even medical assistants and working in a nursing home, people will love to do, t- you know, four hour shifts, work either eight to noon, because you can do anything for a few hours, you know? <laughs> okay. And it's like, you know, if you got stuff going on with your kids at home or you got a sick parent. It's so many other things that you could just do to take off. I would love to work, you know, four, hour, four 20 hours one place and 20 hours another. But like yeah. you said, our insurance is attached to. Right. And that's one of the things like personally I'm going through right now. Like I'm not in a hurry to like go back to work. I would like to, you know, find a job that, you know, suits me best. But I'm like, oh, well, this Cobra is a thousand dollars a month. So, you know what I mean? Like, right. you're no, that's ridiculous. Like the healthcare, the way we do healthcare, employer-based healthcare in America is ridiculous. And it makes everything way more expensive. Like I actually teach a lecture about, um, it's called the cost of care. And that's one of the things we we talk about is just how how crazy healthcare in America is versus other places where they have where they have a public health care system. Because that's part of the reason why in COVID our numbers are so bad, because we don't actually have a public health care system where people trust that people aren't just trying to take, make money off of them. That's part of the consequence of capitalism is that if if you have healthcare tied to finances and people are going to worry, like, are you just trying to make money off of me? Is COVID real or is this a scam? You know, there's a lot of mistrust that goes into our healthcare being for profit. Um, and for me, like I, I work for, you know, I work in academia. So that's one of the reasons why I like working in academia. I feel like people actually do trust me a little bit more knowing that I'm not actually making a whole lot of money. And that's, and the other piece is I get to have a more flexible job. I get to have where I, I currently actually work 20 clinical hours. So I do 20 clinical hours and then I do a lot of teaching and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, the kind of job that I'm talking about is what I actually have. You know? <laughs> so I know it's possible. And I know that it helps me be happy because there was a point when I was doing my schedule a little bit different. And I was like, yeah, I got to change this up because I, I don't like this. So, you know, I just definitely can relate to a lot of people in that because I am from that generation. But I also understand like 
human psychology of mistrust. Like a lot of people don't trust the healthcare system because it is for profit. And then there's a lot of disparities to go into it where people are afraid to use, you know, healthcare because they don't know how much it's going to cost and they don't want to be bankrupt. And so, you know, I feel like if we were to have a nationalized healthcare system that a lot of health disparities could be improved and just so much, so much could be like industry could be improved. And because that's the problem. Like, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Go on. No, you go ahead. You go ahead and talk no, a lot. <laughs> it just, I would get rid of a lot of fraud, waste, and abuse as well, too. And I feel like when you have a good relationship with your doctor, like working in psych, like, you know, sometimes young people are having their first break, they'll be like, well, I know you said I need a psychiatrist, but I want to see, I want to follow up with my primary care doctor. And it's mm-hmm. like, if you have that trust with them, you would, you know what I mean? You would say like, hey, well, maybe we can conference in or maybe we can work on a plan together, but there's so much mistrust of the healthcare system. And I mean, rightfully so. I mean, right. it's there's been, there's always been disparities, especially right. with marginalized communities, but you know, black and brown people, poor people in general. It's just- Yeah, cause I work, in, I've done a lot of work in Appalachian communities here in Cincinnati yeah. too, so. And that's, and that's what's hard. You know, you talk about institutionalized racism and people don't believe it exists, but it's like, okay, how many doctors are from marginalized communities? Not a lot. Most doctors are from, you know, upper middle class, uh, you know, families and they don't even, they can't even relate to a lot of the, the patients. So it's hard, you know, there's, there's all of that contributes to disparities is having a, a workforce that doesn't get it. Um, they can't relate to patients. There's all, I mean, there's obviously all types of stuff that contribute, like just the environmental factors of living in a lot of these marginalized communities um, and just health behaviors, behaviors that people learn. But for me, like I was, t- I was telling my students because they were saying they were working at an office where they tried to recruit me. And I said, no, I like being in the hood with my people, you know, because <laughs> I know they're going to accept me and they're not going to look at me side eye when I got stuff like rare braids. I know they're going to be like, oh, okay, where you get the rare braids from, Dr. Shamo? You know? right. <laughs> Yeah, um, right. Give me the Amazon link. Give me the Amazon right. link. You know? so I, for me, it, it helps me, you know, in survival mode of like not having to deal with so many microaggressions. But I also know that it helps build trust. You know, I've all this is literally what I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to teach um, patients, my learners. I've always wanted to teach, and I've always wanted to work in the hood because I'm like I literally grew up in the hood and there were no doctors there. Yeah, and it's it's. It's wild how you you brought up something earlier and there was a program and I won't name the program or how it was done, but there was literally like a program that transitioned the case management from managed care organizations to certain doctor's offices. Yeah. And there were so many barriers. And when I was working for one of those entities, we had so many complaints because they didn't understand the doctors would, um, you know, we will help with social determinants of health. You know, if you call me and say, my lights are off, I'm like, well, girl, go to the community action agency, or I can drop you off. You get to the library. Um, I got an application for you, but if not, I'll put it in the mail, I'll, you know, and I'm able to help and navigate where the physician's offices can't do that. Yes, they wanted the reimbursement for it, but they can't help. You know, I had a conversation with a physician about 
an older lady, she was widowed and she, her electric was off. Her husband paid most of the bills. You know, her income was cut in half. And he was like, well, she's not taking her insulin. She's not compliant. And I'm like, well, her electric is off. He's like, well, why don't she just pay her bill? And I'm like, well, her rent is a thousand dollars and she gets 1300 and she still has to buy food and medicine and other things. And she doesn't know anything about social service programs. But this is a conversation I'm having with the physician because he has no concept of why people can't just write a check right. for an electric bill. Or another like person that was on my caseload and the managed care um, organization she was with pays for vitamins. If it's certain vitamins like vitamin C, vitamin D, if you have a deficiency, they'll pay for it. And um, the doctor told her, this lady who's on Medicaid, who was receiving SSI, that's getting less than $800 a month and does not have subsidized housing. So she's paying full rent. You're telling her to go out and buy $200 worth of vitamins. And I have to have this conversation with your, not only your receptionist, I have to have this conversation with your nurse and I have to have this conversation with your doctor as to why can't you just write the scripts? It's on our formulary list. Just please write the scripts so this person can get better. Well, she should just buy them. So me to understand if somebody's getting $800, their rent is four seventy-five. dollars you still have to buy food and have utilities, they're going to be able to afford $200 worth of vitamins. So sorry about my rant, but those are the barriers that people face. And it's kind of like when you don't have an advocate or someone to speak on your behalf, what do you do? Right. And that's what, and that's what I love about, you know, just tie it full circle. That's what I love about being at Shaw High School where they taught us how to advocate and speak up for people. And they taught us to be proud of where we're from, you know, because that's the thing. Like, like I said, people will try to take anything and turn into a negative, right? But they taught us to be proud of that and embrace it as a superpower. Because I know for me, being from the hood and living in the, and working in the hood, uh, mostly live in the hood too, you know? Right. <laughs> so I, feel, I live in a city, but I live, you know, in the woods, but it's still pretty close to the hood. Um, so it's just one of those things for me, like I have a different level of understanding and I embrace it as my superpower. And of course, you know, people always try to be like, oh yeah, I forgot she's from East Cleveland or, oh yeah, she is kind of hood and that sort of thing. And it's just like, yeah, but that's, that's what we need. We need more doctors from the hood who understand yes. things and can explain things to patients and can advocate for them in a way and can, you know, point them to resources and to have that compassion and empathy, all of that stuff. Any, any marginalized community, like I advocate for... Uh, everybody, anybody from any marginalized community, because we need more healthcare professionals from the neighborhoods, the the places that we that we serve, the places that need the most help. Because a lot of times, the people who are not from those areas, they would just be like, "Oh, well, they don't, they're not going to do this, or they're not going to do that. It's a waste of time and a waste of space." And it's just like, no, you just don't know how to communicate with them in a way that they can understand. Yeah. And instead of you challenging yourself and trying to learn and listening and that sort of thing, you literally walk into the room with a with your guard up and they can sense that you know and dismiss the things yes. that they're presenting to you right exactly and they don't even tell them that stuff like I was talking so I, I did a tv interview this morning and we were we had a lot of conversation but one of the biggest things that I told them uh it was um Curtis Fuller here in Cincinnati channel five he asked me we were talking about obesity and he told me like what kind of things that I think we need, what, what can Cincinnati do to, to be better about trying to work, you know, work in our community and that sort of thing um, with obesity and, and healthcare disparities and that. 
Um, and at the moment I was just kind of like, well, I think that, you know, there are a lot of great things about Cincinnati. Like we have a great recreation center. We have great walk paths. We have a lot of, you know, support groups for people who are interested in healthy lifestyles, but I talked about a lot of the things that I do in the community. And I, after the fact, I was like, we need more black doctors. We need more people like me. Like we need more people like me to be a spokesperson for healthy lifestyles and to teach people how to achieve that. And that sort of thing. I'm just like, this city where we live, Cincinnati has a lot of black people. It's, I think that the last time I looked, it's like 42% black, which is a very high number of black people. It is. And our physician workforce is 2% black, as far as we know. So that definitely contributes to health disparities because if you can't communicate to people and even just have like, you know, I talked about like trauma-informed care and how I have a therapist who works in my office because a lot of people emotionally eat and they're stressed out. And I'm like, okay, well, and, and it's going to be hard for them to manage their diabetes and high blood pressure if you're stressed out and you're emotional eating. So I refer them to therapy, uh, manage medications. Uh, you know, I do a lot of things to, to try to help navigate all of this stuff. And a lot of doctors don't spend the time doing that. They don't even know what to do. And it's just like, so I could, I could teach all of them or you can just hire people who inherently care like I do, you know? <laughs> You can have, you know, and the kids don't have, I want to say, I feel like they said the number of, not correct me if I'm wrong, the number of black doctors has gone down. For sure. Because a lot of them are retiring because medical schools, schools haven't done the best about admitting them, Um, especially with MCAT and all the standardized testing. That's been a barrier for people getting admitted into medical school. Um, so it's, there's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's part of institutionalized racism dealing with MCAT and GPAs and, and just the education, the funding for education has gone down tremendously the past 20 years. It was, it was already kind of on the down slant for us when we graduated in 02, but definitely the past 20 years has gotten a lot worse and there, the education curriculum isn't even creating a lot of people who have access to, you know, all of the classes you need to, to uh, have the curriculum, um, to uh, be able to navigate the curriculum for medical school. So there's definitely, there's definitely a lot of institutionalized racism that's gone into why there's not as many black doctors as we need. And that definitely needs to be a conversation that a lot of people have as we're talking about health disparities, because it's like, you know, we talk about bias and microaggressions and all this sort of stuff about like, you know, trying to talk to white people about it or majority people, whatever you want to call them. Um, but it's like, no, what you need to do is like give opportunities to black people and let them yeah. go be great and and really embrace them because that's what my department has done for me. Like where I work, they love me and they're just like, you're amazing and and you're different, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's great. That's really great. I love that you're different. And I know that there's a place for you and people need you and your patients love you, you know? So it's like, you can't, it's hard when you are, in those spaces because it takes so much work for oh did you just mute yourself sorry about that um so it you can't like it takes so much work and it starts so early and our education system is in such despair um we can't like there's so much that we have to do there's so much work to, get to be done. Them. Yeah, so much work to be done because our education system. I'm a firm believer that um, you have to, 
I mean, you have to start early. And I feel like almost you can't quality education is the biggest barrier to get mm-hmm. out of poverty. And I almost feel like these kids now we're talking about we need to put these babies in school. School daycare needs to be a part of the school district at this point. Right. So they can receive a quality education. They won't be in anybody's basement. I'm not all basement providers aren't bad, but I'm just yeah. saying like if they were in a school district, they would be able to thrive. You learn so much right. from birth to age five. Right. And that's where it starts. And that's what they do in other countries. And that's yeah. what's so crazy about America. It's like other countries do all of this stuff. They they have education that starts at a very young age. They have med, you know, healthcare, uh, public healthcare system. They have, you know, vacations and jobs that don't try to work you to death. Um, you know, there's so many lessons that we can learn from other countries. Um, but instead of trying to learn the lessons, often we just like to go around and have blank slogans like "America is the greatest." You know. <laughs> Like propaganda, like we just right. we just feed everybody a bunch of propaganda instead of actually do like learning from other countries because that's not anything like the idea of diversity. Like 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 I said, my the people who I work with, they all love me because I'm different and they understand and they value that, and they know that a certain type type of population needs me, and really everybody does. You know, I take care of all types of people, but they know for a certain population that I say I save lives for a certain population more than I save lives for another population. You know. And so that's the thing, like when you talk about diversity, we should be, you should, you know, people can learn a lot from me and what I do. And we can learn a lot from other countries and what they do in other states, even like California, all types of states um, do different things. And so it's just one of those things for me, like I just, you know, the idea of research information is definitely under attack in America right now. And so hopefully, like, I don't know how long it's going to take for us to dig out from that hole. But once we do, you know, that's definitely one of the first things we need to do is restructure education in America because we are definitely behind and for me like I know I I know that for me part of the reason why I became a doctor is because my grandmother died when I was like nine years old maybe eight I can't remember how old I was actually I think maybe I was seven my grandmother died when I was seven um and my grandmother bought a house in Shaker when she was I don't know how old she was but my dad was in high school so my dad graduated from Shaker and he went to Kent so because my grandmother won the lottery to be able to buy the house um, and won the lottery and was future oriented and, yeah. you know, bought a house, a two family house and, you know, rented downstairs or I don't know. I don't know which one she rented, but she rented one of the units and then they lived on another unit. Um, and my dad, when my grandmother died at a, at a young age, because she kind of, you know, was in a destructive coping Um and just and died at a young age from cancer, unfortunately. So my when she died, we started going to school in Shaker. And before that, I went to school in Garden Valley Projects. So the teachers were were fine, but it was a very stressful education environment. Like teachers were getting robbed. It was crazy. It was like straight chaos and ridiculousness at in Garden Valley. Like I went to Anton Gradina in Garden Valley. It was the crack epidemic. It was just crazy. So, you know, we were shielded from it as much as we could be, but definitely leaving Garden Valley Projects and going to Shaker at, you know, such a young age definitely opened my eyes to a lot of things that were different, even from where I lived. I grew up on 96 and miles in Cleveland, so closer to Garfield. So, you know, it was definitely different from where I grew up and the teachers were amazing and the curriculum was amazing. 
And we had, you know, I remember like in fifth grade, they brought us like a lung and we took a straw and blew it up. I was like, this is amazing. This is fascinating. You know, I would have never had something like that if I stayed in Cleveland public schools. And I hope that they have it now, you know what I mean? But it was just like having that exposure at a young age, having resources. Like I could definitely tell that Shaker at that time definitely invested a lot of money into their education because we have just all types of, like, it was like a Cadillac version of education. You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, Sh- Shaker does have the highest property taxes in the state of Ohio. Yes. So, yes. They, so it definitely, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it was, I definitely could tell a difference. And it's just like one of those things like, had my grandmother not died when she, at a young age, uh, in her 50s, and had I not started school in Shaker at a young age, at, you know, at a, at a critical age, third grade, um, I, I probably still would have been a doctor, but I felt like, it definitely increased my confidence because the other thing that's interesting about my story is that when I went to Shaker, it's kind of a full circle moment. One of my best friends was Ashley Pace. And so when I came to Shaker, when we were at Woodbury, I think she was maybe new to Woodbury when I got there because I originally was at Mercer. So I went from Mercer to Woodbury and in fifth grade, you know, that's when everybody kind of comes together from all the different schools and all different neighborhoods in Shaker. And so her father is is a doctor. And so, but she had come from East Cleveland. So she was used to being in the hood. And I reminded her of the hood. And I didn't know, like she was, she was nice to me. You know what I mean? And we ended up being really, really good friends, like almost like sisters for that whole time that I was at Shaker. And like, so for me to have that kind of exposure to actually have been in a physician's house and to actually have been around people who understood that I was hood, but I was still smart, the under they just accepted me for who I was. It was just a lot that happened when I went to Shaker, you know, um, that possibly could have happened when I was in Cleveland Public. Um, I know they really did love me when I was in Cleveland Public, but it was just so much chaos and it made it hard to learn, you know? <laughs> and the it, classes are overcrowded. It's just so right. many things going on with those kids. They've been displaced from foster care. Right. I mean, it's just poverty. Yeah. It's like these kids it don't have a fighting a chance. It was a lot. And then the other thing, they, they actually did a study that said that um people who grow up like poor kids who grow up around rich kids actually do better in life because mm-hmm. I think that you just learn a different perspective in life so like I grew up in a super chaotic crazy home but then I would go over Ashley's house and it was super peaceful super quiet and it was completely the opposite and so for me I, like looking back on it now I must have been like this is what I want out of life you know because that's the thing about my life that I love so much that it is so peaceful and stable you know <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, and one of my friends said that too um, about um, that went to a private school and still lived in the hood, but had a scholarship to go to a private school. And a few of my friends that lived in East Cleveland or in Glenville and went to like the university schools, the Beaumonts, they right. were like it was just a change of an environment, and right. it just really helped them to become who they were. Right, a different perspective, and you know, it can be positive or negative with the microaggressions depending on the school you go to. Like, uh, you know, one of my best friends from college, Shanice, she went to Laurel, um, and you know, so there's there's positive and negatives of things that happen, but you definitely get a different perspective on life and anything, any kind of any kind of uh, a way. But for me, you know, I, I did kind of the opposite. I was thinking about going to private school. I had, I had been looking into going to private school, but instead I ended up going to Shaw High School, which was way better than going to, to, uh, to private school, in my opinion. Um, so, you know, you have to be open to new experiences, but we have to use some of this data and like, you know, information that we have, like definitely we can, we can change up 
the way that education is done. We can integrate different incomes and in different cities and all that sort of stuff. Because for me, that's what I really had as a, you know, for a lot of my educational experiences, I was, I was actually bused to go to school in the garden, in Garden Valley. I didn't live in Garden Valley. Um, so, you know, just, just trying to create those spaces where you can have true diversity and inclusion of different types of people and um, see people, you know, benefit from it. If it can be a, cause that's the thing that I like looking back on it now, it was just, you know, you know how you look back on things. I'm just like, man, I never really thought about the fact that, you know, Ashley was my best friend when I was at Woodbury and the fact that she was a, a doctor's daughter and the fact that most, of, most doctors wouldn't even let their kids play with somebody like me, you know, <laughs> like yeah. this hood kid, you know, but she, they grew up in the, they were, they lived in East Cleveland before they came to Shaker. So she was, she was used to people like me and it, it I'm sure it felt familiar for her. And we, and I, we were just some kid stuff. Like we were just, I'll be at her house. We'd be jumping out of bed, listening to Mary J. Blige and the brat and you know it was the bad boy time so little kim like we would just be like literally just listening to music all day jumping on a bed chilling um but it definitely for me um was a peaceful great environment and for me that's what my house is for a lot of my nieces and nephews and that's what i try to do with my boundaries and everything is just maintain my peace and create and keep that sense of the people can come visit peace whenever they need to and try to create it for themselves because that's what I really had to do in my life is create peace for myself, you know? You've done a great job at that. So and you too, like everybody in our friend group, I feel like we've all in the past 20 years, that's been the journey that we've been on, you know, <laughs> we've been on a journey for liberation and for yeah. stability and for peace. And it's just because it's so hard to get in when your life isn't like we understand the severity of not having peace in our lives and yeah. I feel so bad for the people who've not gotten to that point because they're in constant chaos and they don't understand so when they bring us the drama we're like whoa don't you know we're like right. it's zen over here keep that away right. but they don't understand it because that's that's their environment right and they try to pull you into it and they try to be like well how could you not want to help and how could you not and it's just like you know I understand I understand. And especially for me, I've, you know, lived a lot of life, even at this young age, I'll just have had a lot of experiences with trying to help my family and doing things that I really, that weren't my responsibility, you know? So for me, um, you know, there's just a lot of codependency and that sort of thing in my family and being married to a psychiatrist who could tell me that has <laughs> been helpful. And what's funny is we were 18, like, I, I knew I definitely want to be a family doctor, but I had, we had no idea, like, he was going to go into psychiatry with my husband, and so I just remember him telling me that one time, like, you have a lot of codependency in your family, and y'all are a little too enmeshed, and y'all need to have better boundaries, you know, so just getting some feedback like that, even from my spouse, and I give him feedback all the time about stuff, too, so just mm -hmm. being able to have that, uh, you know, people outside of you who can see things like that is really helpful of learning a different way, because it's, like I said, it's all about different perspectives, and just trying to learn different ways to not sabotage yourself. I feel like so many people do all of that for other people and they sabotage themselves without even realizing it. Yeah, you can't set yourself on fire to keep other people warm. Like you can help. Like, and I think that's the biggest thing when you set boundaries, people think that you don't want to help them, you don't care, you don't love them. But it's like at the same time, you um, since they're in crisis, they don't understand how much of, us helping them in their crisis will affect our well-being 
And the other piece is if you save everybody all the time from that discomfort, then they never learn the lessons either. You know, because no. I think that like you were saying earlier, like people be like, oh, well, you've had life and you're like, well, you made some some decisions you could have made that were different. And that's a level of accountability. Like there's mm-hmm. a level of accountability of your actions have consequences. And obviously, you know, like I said, sometimes it's the hormones, sometimes it's all types of stuff that makes us act in that way. That's not really future oriented or survival oriented. But part of that living is understanding that feedback, getting that feedback. Like I said, like even me, I got diagnosed with cancer at a young age and that was definitely some feedback of like, well, you've been running racket for a long time. You need to sit your ass down. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and that, and that's not, and that well, of course was scary for you, but scary for the rest of us because you practice what you preach. You're not just on this podcast or anything like that. You are very strategic with your meal planning, with eating vegetarian during the week, running, exercise. So although you said you've gotten better, you were still great at keeping and maintaining a healthy lifestyle then. So we're like, oh shoot, if this right. is going on with Anita, let me reevaluate everything that I'm doing as well. Cause like you, you know what I mean? Like you right. were a poster child for health because you were right. like in every aspect of your life, mentally, physically, emotionally, you made a purpose to try to be healthy. Right. But it's, and that's what's hard because, you know, you think about survival in one way, but you don't realize that obviously there's different perspectives on survival. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm saying. Like having those boundaries and not taking on other people's responsibility as part of survival too. So that's what I had to learn. I had to learn more about protecting my peace, you know, because I was doing all of that stuff and I was trying to be everything for everybody. And I was, and part of it too, like I said, when I was on that progesterone, I didn't sleep. The reason I was able to do all a lot of that stuff was because I never slept. I had insomnia, um, oh, you know? Nice. So it's just, it's different levels. Of, and that's why I talk a lot about now. Like, and I, it's even funny, like I've gained weight and all that sort of thing. And I look at my face from back then. Like I look at it just in my face and my face was just like, look stressed out. So, you know, stress definitely, you know, you can, Cause that was one of the things we were talking to Curtis Fuller earlier. Like you can eat healthy, you can walk and all that sort of stuff. But if you're not creating peace and protecting your peace, that still contributes to cancer and heart disease and all that sort of thing. Like you have to do it all. You have to do, you have to do all of the things that, that we as providers say, like, and that's the, us as doctors, we have like this, like, you know, martyr complex of like, okay, well, I'm doing all the healthy things, but I got to help all these people. And it's just like, no, you got to help yourself first and you can't. Yeah. You have to understand your worth, you're worthy. Cause that's what I'm saying. Like I was in this people pleaser phase and I feel like I was kind of chasing my worth, you know? And I had to like really have a conversation with myself. Like you are enough by yourself. You don't need to do all of these things. You don't need to be all these places. And of course I worked with a life coach as well because I was kind of changing careers too in that moment, uh, Dr. Tony. So I worked with a life coach as well to just be like, okay, so what is like, cause back then I used to call myself Dr. Doolot. And so after all of that, I had to be like, okay, what is the new normal for myself? Who am I now? And so I think that we should all kind of ask ourselves that at different phases in our lives. Like, okay, I've been doing X, Y, Z, you know, let me give myself some feedback. Like what's, what's been working well in that area? What's not been working well? And what can I do differently? And the biggest thing that I've done differently the past five years is say no. (laughs) All types of activities, to all types of people, to all types of things. You know, I just had to become a lot more comfortable with saying no 
period, you know? Yeah, and no was a complete sentence. And I think like after I had that stroke, that was my, that was my awakening. I was like, oh yeah, no, I won't be doing that. And people are like, what? I'm like, no, I can't, like, I'm not going to stress myself out because at the end of the day, like, of course my family and my friends are supportive, but if I can't take care of myself, I have to go to a nursing home. I can't live with you. So no, you're not going to stress me out. <laughs> um, you know, you have to say no. You know, Exactly. Like, Person, and I don't probably say no is to you know my grandfather because I'm the only grandchild and right. you know if he asks for help he really needs it right but everybody so, and, else right and that's the thing for me like it's not that you say no to everything for me and that's why I was nice working with the with the life coach for me I have to think about my values like whatever is this ask is it aligned with my values? And if the answer is no, am I doing it just to do it just because somebody asked me, then it, then no, then don't do that. Do the things that you genuinely are passionate about and you genuinely care and are aligned with your values. Like that's kind of how I gauge now, like what to say yes to. Cause I think that's the problem. Like, you know, people have a hard time saying no because they're kind of like, well, what should I be saying no to? What should I be saying yes to? And so working with a life coach definitely helped me just try to really reconnect with my vision and my purpose for myself and my adulthood and just learn which things to say yes to and which things to say no to. And that goes for people too. Like there's plenty of people who I just don't, you know, their values and the way they live their life is not aligned with the way I live my life and my values. So it's, it makes it a lot easier to say no to people who just are not aligned with your values and, and your vision for yourself. And then just also the way people treat you. Like, I'm not going to break my back for people who wouldn't break their back for me, you know? So, but if, if it is somebody who's broken their back for me, then absolutely. The answer is yes. You know, <laughs> so. and yes, you make a really good point. Cause like you said, I don't say no to everything, but you know, it's when you're always a yes person and you were in this phase of your life too, people go for, go to you for things that they can resolve themselves. Right. And it's just kind of like, well, it's just easier for me to ask you. Cause you solve this problem for me. Right. Instead of them trying to figure out. Yep. Yeah, because that's how I was. I was very much a fixer. And that's a trauma response too, you know. Mm-hmm. So I definitely had to learn how to stop being so much of a fixer. And and like I said, just be and basically just be good to the people that are good to you, but not necessarily like uh so Beyonce has this new line and uh I think it's alien superstar. She says, I'm stingy with my love. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of and, and that's you know, my the business, the name of my business is Health is Love. And so people think, you know, of course, that I am a very loving person, but I've never been a doormat. That's never really been my MO. Um, when I was on that progesterone, I was a little bit, little bit of a doormat. Um, but just my natural state is to really have accountability. I'm an Aries, so we like to fight. <laughs> so Every Aries I, I know has a little bit of nuck if you buck in them. Like, yes, <laughs> I definitely have it. People don't know, but in, deep down inside, I have to really fight hard to not be that person and not go to jail. <laughs> so like, like, I, I really haven't. I've never really been that person because, like I said, I've never really been to jail. So I'm not. I've never really been the person to be like, "You look at me funny," kind of fight. It's just been more that if if some stuff goes down and I'm I'm feeling like I need to defend myself, that kind of thing. But I have to learn how to not even be that kind of person even then. Pop off um, if you need to. I understand. Yeah, I've, I have. I have to learn to just. Because even that, even that kind of pop off when you need to in a defensive mode is can still land you in jail, you know? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so for me, I have to avoid being around people 
who can bring that out of me. I have to avoid being around people who think that's okay as far as their values are different than my values. So my values are, you know, stability, protecting my peace, and none of that is aligned with going to jail, you know, <laughs> or fighting people. So for me, it's like, you know, the idea of like being stingy with your love for me is just accountability and keeping a circle small, respect, you know, like I said, I'm good to the people who are good to me, but I'm not going to be nobody's doormat. No, and that's one thing we all have to learn as women, because naturally we're nurturers. Uh, we want to make people happy because we know how it feels not to be happy right. at some point. But yeah, but that's why a lot of women, especially, have really poor health and that sort of thing. So, like I said, for me, it's been a journey, like back and forth. I've been that I've been that people pleaser person, and I've not been a people not been a people pleaser person and for me it's way more stable and peaceful to let go of that fixer you know mentality let go of that martyr uh, dr tony calls it the martyr complex that we have as doctors um and let go of just you know just giving your love to everybody people got to earn it people got to deserve it you know so that's that's kind of where i am now in my life um and especially like i said off that progesterone <laughs> <laughs> well, like, people, don't, something to you. people don't realize how much hormones really play into you know people acting different now you know I want to my next book I definitely want to talk about a lot more and I've talked about it quite a bit on this podcast too of just you know just taking a step back like for me it was just it's definitely been something that I noticed immediately when I came off of progesterone but then like just looking just but Jen has still just been like little like little reflections on different things like oh, I remember that time when I was on that progesterone you know? <laughs> it was a time like my sisters came to visit me and they were making breakfast and they they like and I was uh in residency too and I was like sleep deprived and I just like something and I like was just irritable so that's the thing for me like I try to you know when people just are seeming a little irritable I try to be like you know, I know that I can be irritable every once in a while too especially if I'm sleep deprived and if I'm not feeling well so I give some people that like okay maybe it's just a little irritable because I've been there but for me it's the repeated you know situations of doormats and punching bag and all that sort of thing like no nah, I'm not I'm not that person I'm not that you might like I said I, I'm so cute and innocent looking and I'm very nice but I'm an Aries and I'm not gonna be nobody's punching bag <laughs> <laughs> like I said I'm not going to jail I'm not gonna punch back I know better than that but I'm gonna walk away you know Right. East Cleveland tough. You know how to yes. handle very complex situations without going to jail. <laughs> so yes, that's what we have all had to navigate the past 20 years too. <laughs> Not having a criminal record. Because <laughs> that's the other thing we know about accountability. We've seen a lot of people in our neighborhood and our communities have to deal with the legal system and just the ramifications of it all. So people are still navigating and figure it out. Yeah, exactly. So but that's the thing for me. I see people do stuff like on Twitter and all that stuff. And I'd be like, oof, I tell my mentees, rule number one is don't go to jail. And it's <laughs> figuratively, figuratively <laughs> and literally like, <laughs> just remember if and every time you think about popping off, Dr. Show on your head, <laughs> rule number one, don't go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> and don't put anything crazy in writing. Oh my goodness. Like, oh my goodness. Yeah. All right. Well, this was definitely a great conversation. Thank you so much for being my guest. 
Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Yes, yes. I look forward to seeing you soon. I'm sad I won't see you this weekend because, you know, know. one of our our, uh, boos, I call a lot of people my boo, one of our boos is getting married. Um, So... But we'll we'll see you soon. You know, we always getting together. We're supposed to be going to doing some trips next year. So we'll see you then. Absolutely. I know this darn myomectomy, but I'm almost recovered. So yeah, I'll be no, down I know. for every other trip. <laughs> I know. It's like that sometimes. Sometimes you gotta sit that ass down. Yeah. <laughs> Take care of your health. Y'all keep me in the group chat with all the pictures, just like I'm there. I want to know about all the restaurants. Video, video of the shenanigans. But yeah, yeah, I'm excited. That's that's one of the best parts too about our friend group is like all the weddings, all the love celebrations, the babies. Hasn't been a lot of babies. That's what's been kind of interesting. I say like a lot of my friends from high school, we don't have kids because we grew up with chaotic childhoods. And we're just trying to preserve our peace. Like we've been through a lot. Yes. <laughs> It's definitely hard preserving your peace with children, you know. It is because Jasmine's the only one, yeah, with the baby. Yeah, we yeah, yeah. So that's, but that's why that's part of why I'm sure we've been really supportive of each other because, you know, we we have that uh, level of peace that we can just leave. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, what the next trip? Where are we leaving again? Right. <laughs> so yeah, it's been. And it's been good to even have people who understand that because a lot of times people, you know, it was kind of interesting. I had um, a few weeks ago, I had my mentees over my house. They come and have dinner with me a lot. So they came to my house for dinner and like half the group was talking about how they didn't want to have children because it just seemed really difficult. And the other half were like, but I want to have kids. But the people who didn't want to have children were like super vocal. And so like the next day, a couple of them were working with me in my office. And I was just like, you have to understand that they never get to talk about that. Most people who don't have children never get to have an open conversation about the yeah. fact that they just they just want to be by themselves. <laughs> you know, like I'm like y'all people with you know who want to have children, you get to have your time all the time. Everybody talks about it all the time. I was like, I want to have babies, it. and I want to have three of them. And yes. if I can, I'm gonna adopt or do IVF. You know, like there's so many options, and people yeah. who don't, you know, we kind of get the side eye. They're like, yes. So I was like, like you know, it's not that, you know, like, and I literally said it in that conversation. I was like, the people who want to have children, more power to you. I was like, you know, because it's just a lot, you know, if you, if you have the support system and it's, and the desire, it's not any shade to y'all. Like, it's just a different perspective. And that's the thing, like, they get to share their perspective all the time. And also I was trying to tell them, like, we don't get to share our perspective ever. <laughs> no. People, people like, are they're dismissive. They're so dismissive. Yeah, and like, and I don't know we're wrapping up, but I'm just like, anytime, you know, I go to a training, you know, or anything, everybody's like, well, this is pre-COVID because, you know, no trainings are in person anymore. Yeah. They're like, oh my gosh, tell me about your husband and your kids and your pets. I'm like, hi, I'm Siobhan. No husband, no pets, no kids. And they're like, oh, they're like mortified. I'm like, it's okay. I, I really like it that way. It's kind of mm-hmm. how I want it. <laughs> yes, definitely. When you've had a lot of trauma and chaos and just coming from where we come from, it definitely can be a choice to be like, you know what? I just think I really deserve some peace and quiet. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just save really well for retirement so I can have me a nice nursing home or right. <laughs> or just some caregivers. Right. I mean, you know, we, we do a lot with our nieces and nephews. We have so many nieces and nephews. So that's the other thing too. But you know, it's just, it's just kind of funny though. But that's part of why we get to support each other in that way. Be like, when the next girl's trip, girls. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes. 
plan. All right. Well, I will see you soon. Recover well, speedy recovery. Uh, Thank you so much for doing this during your recovery. Yes. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. So thank you for all that you're doing. And, you know, we'll talk soon. Yes. We'll see each other soon. All right. Love you. Bye. Love you too. Bye. Oh, I guess I should do the closing. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) So that wraps up self-love Saturday. And I want you to always remember that loving yourself is an act of rebellion. Bye, everybody. Self-love Saturday. Help live with love. Self-love Saturday, breaking cycles, we rebels. Self-love Saturday, help live with love. Self-love Saturday, breaking cycles, we rebels.